The story that you are about to hear is a true story. It's about the final days of an 86-year-old man who pastored a church in the city that is now modern-day Izmir of Turkey. Back then, this city was called Smyrna. The pastor is the, what seems to be the only survivor who personally knew one of Jesus' disciples at that time. In fact, early church history books tell us that this pastor was discipled by John himself, the one who wrote the book of Revelation that we are now studying. The year was 160 A.D. The Roman Empire was vast in its land and its people and its power. They used that power to demand that everyone would give allegiance to Caesar, forcing all to participate in worship and sacrifices of their gods. They firmly believed that only Jesus Christ, the Christians that is, firmly believed that only Jesus Christ should be given allegiance, that they would not bow down to anyone nor call Caesar Lord, so the Christians were especially hated during this time. They would not give sacrifices. They would not deny their faith. They believed that Christ's death on a cross once and for all was the only sacrifice that was ever needed on their behalf. The consequences for not making these sacrifices and denying their faith was death, publicly being executed in a stadium of crowds, spectators looking on. During one of those occasions in the stadium, there was a Christian man who was devoured by large animals. These bloodthirsty men and women in the crowd with great pleasure started shouting, cheering, and chanting, down with the atheists, down with the atheists. Now, if that sounds strange to you, it's because you don't understand that Christians did not have statues, icons, or images that they used for worship. So Romans thought this was really strange that they did not have something specific or tangible to bow down to. They thought they must not even believe in a God at all. And they sure didn't participate in their animal sacrifices. So they called them atheists, down with the atheists, meaning down with the Christians. But that wasn't enough. They weren't content with just any Christian dying. They knew that if they could stop that pastor, that bishop of Smyrna, that they could maybe stop the spread of the gospel from reaching more people in their city. So they started chanting, get Polycarp. Get Polycarp. Louder and louder they cried. I've been trying to think about this all week. What would it be like to have crowds chanting your name and have a warrant out for your arrest knowing that your death would soon be coming? Your pastor has gotten in trouble with the law for his Abraham Lincoln antics. But friends, that was a little slap on the wrist and a $50 fine in Washington, D.C. I can't even imagine having large crowds of bloodthirsty men and women and the entire Roman government chanting for my execution. The eyewitness accounts say that when Polycarp heard this, this is what I've been trying to think, what would I feel like? What would I be like if I was the pastor and my name was to be shouted? Well, Polycarp? was not the least upset. He was planning to stay right where he was in the city of Smyrna, even though many people were telling him, no, pastor, no, get out, run for your life. He was persuaded to leave 
his normal house and go to a friend's house in the country. While he was there, he spent the entire time, day and night, in prayer for people in other churches, people around the world. It seems as if he wasn't just praying for himself or his own safety. Three days before he was arrested, he had a dream that the pillow under his head went up in flames, and so the next morning he told everyone, I'm going to be burnt alive. Shortly after that dream, Romans closed in on their location. When they found word that they had been spotted and found out, Polycarp went to a different house nearby to hide, and Romans looked and searched in the house that he used to be hiding in, and they found two young men who they started torturing begging them to confess where Polycarp was, and eventually they did. That night, they found Polycarp lying down in the upper room of a cottage. He could have escaped, he could have run. He simply said, may God's will be done. He went downstairs, spoke with the officers. Many of them were amazed at how calm and how old he was. Apparently, one of them said, why have we gone to so much trouble to capture this guy? Did not seem very impressive to them. He immediately made his request for his phone call. Well, not exactly. They didn't have phones. But he did ask one thing. Could I have a meal and an hour of interrupted prayer? The officers allowed him to eat his final meal and his final phone call to the Lord He ended up praying for some two hours. The men said they were astounded and regretted that they were going to treat this man, this seemingly godly man in this way. But they went through with it, and Polycarp was taken to the arena. And it says that there was a loud voice that could be heard from heaven said, Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. The crowd heard that Polycarp was captured. They were in an uproar. They took him before the Roman commander of the proconsul. He said to Polycarp, Have respect for your old age. Swear now by the fortunes of Caesar. Repent and say with everyone else, Down with the atheists. Surprisingly, Polycarp did say, Down with the atheists. But of course, that wasn't enough. The commander said, Swear to reproach Jesus Christ. Christ, I will set you free now. Polycarp responded with these famous words, for 86 years I have served him. He has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? The commander and Polycarp went back and forth for a bit longer until the commander finally said, Polycarp, I'm going to have you burned, just like he dreamed. He said back, you threaten me with fire, which will burn for an hour. It will then be extinguished, but you know nothing of the fire coming, the judgment of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Do what you want. The crowds collected the wood immediately. The Jews, as usual, along with the Romans, were there to help. When the pile was ready, Polycarp took off his outer clothes, and when they tried to fix him to the wood with nails, he said, leave me as I am, for he who gives me strength to endure the fire will enable me not to struggle, and I don't need these nails. They bound him with his hands behind his back. The fire was lit, and the flame blazed furiously. 
Different accounts talk about different ways that the wind blew, and it was miraculous that Polycarp was not being burned like they had hoped. So when the executioners realized that his body was not going to be consumed by the fire, the commander told the executioner, pierce him with the dagger. And so he did. Blood gushed out all over the fire, and Polycarp died at once. Christians desired a proper burial, as they normally did, but the Jews would not allow it, so they burned his body into a heap of bones and ashes. This is one of the earliest eyewitness accounts that we have in recorded Christian history of a Christian dying for the sake of their faith that is outside of the Bible. Now, why open and spend these beginning minutes reading you this story? Well, because I think this paints the perfect background context. If this is fresh in your minds, and we now turn to Revelation chapter 2, read verses 8 through 11, we're going to read the words to the church of Smyrna, the church that Polycarp pastored. We're going to read the words of John, the one who tutored, mentored, and discipled Polycarp. So let's read them together. The words of Jesus Christ, Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Today's message is the third message of eight in a series through the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. In each of these messages, the aim is to help us as a church see the marks of a healthy church according to Jesus himself. The first message two weeks ago, we covered an overview of chapter one, and I argued that as a church, if we're healthy and if we are rightly biblical, we will be centered around Jesus Christ. Everything is about him when we gather. Everything is about Jesus when we scatter through our daily lives. That was Mark 1 two weeks ago. Last week, as we looked at the first letter to the church in Ephesus, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 2, we saw that the, Ephes- the church in Ephesus, the Ephesians that is, they were a healthy church in some ways, but Jesus rebukes them for their lack of love. So strong in doctrine, strong in truth. They knew their Bibles. They read their theology books. They didn't love one another as they ought. They didn't love their neighbors as they ought. And Jesus doesn't tell them, well, stop reading books. Realize that your theology and your truth of doctrine should spill over and change and transform the way you live every day. And that these two things should not be at odds with each other as they seem to be. That was Mark number two. Speak the truth in love, church. This morning we come to Mark number three, the church in Smyrna. Well, what do you think the big idea is as we read that passage? If you look down in your bulletin, you'll notice the title of this morning's message is that a healthy church is faithful unto death. I still think that is kind of the big idea here in this text. A healthy church 
is so committed, so faithful, so devoted that not even death itself can sway their allegiance to Jesus Christ. But I want to think about this in a different way this morning. I think this will not only capture the essence of this message, but I think it will also capture the essence of all that's going on in this text. So how about this? A healthy church sometimes gets smaller. A healthy church sometimes loses its church members. A healthy church sometimes doesn't grow and add more and more pastoral staff. Their pastoral staff gets killed and they lose their pastor. Sometimes healthy churches throughout church history, and maybe the most healthy of them, they don't grow in budgets. They lose tithing members to the flames. Let me see if I can sum this up. I think the perspective that we need from this passage is that the church health should not be determined by the world's standards. I think that's true just by the essence of this series is that we want to look to the standards of Jesus Christ. Jesus, what do you think a healthy church looks like? But in this passage in particular, as you look at the church in Smyrna, as you consider Smyrna, realize how countercultural they were then and how countercultural they are even now today. For example, notice the first thing that Jesus says to the church. I know your tribulations and your poverty but you are rich. You see, a successful church back then, a successful church today, is often marked by its great big budgets. How much financial wealth they have. That's obviously what he's referring to. If you know anything about Smyrna, which I'm assuming most of you probably don't, so just a little FYI, this would have been like the wealthy town. This would have been the high-rising houses, the nice cars in the parking lot sort of people. Well, these Christians were the poor in the community. They were the indentured servants that serve all the rich people. And God's providence, that's who he saved in Smyrna. And so compared to everyone else in the society, they were really nothing. So he says, I know your poverty. I know your troubles. But you're actually rich. Nice big church buildings. They didn't have that. Multiple staff. Lots of ministries. Seems like they are some of the most pathetic individuals according to the world's standards. There's nothing impressive about them. They're not growing in great numbers. They're not the next biggest and greatest church of Asia Minor. The pastor isn't going all over the world impressing the crowds. No, the pastors, oh, the crowds, they know him, and they want him dead. The world's not impressed. So let's think about us today, Embassy Church members, Embassy Church corporately. Are we trying to impress the world? Are we trying to measure our success by the way the world measures success? Or by the health of the words of Jesus? Notice what he does not say to this church. He's intimately and well acquainted with their tribulations and their sufferings. 
But did you notice that he didn't say, well, you've suffered well for a time. That suffering's going to be over now. You've paid your dues. You know, sometimes life gets tough, but I always work things out for good in this life. No. He says the exact opposite. He says things are going to get worse. Let that assault your senses this morning and your ears. You have ears to hear this morning? Sometimes I think we like to laugh at the prosperity preachers that we talked about last week, but we don't realize there's a little bit of prosperity gospel in all of us. We have this mindset or thought that, well, God's always going to work things out for good now. You're always going to get that promotion. You're always going to get that job. You're always going to get married and have the children that you want. Friends, that's not reality, is it? The Bible doesn't promise you these specifics. Don't have your best life now. Have your best life later in eternity. Jesus never promises your best life here now. So we should not be surprised if we're in tune with Scripture to realize that God's Word says, sometimes things get worse, Christians. And I commend you for your faithfulness so far, so continue to be faithful even to the point of death. Your success, your health, will not be measured by, well, we went through a tough time, but then we overcame, and look, look at how big and great we are. No, they continued to look small and unimpressive. One of the reasons I want to belabor this point is because as we look at all the churches in these series of seven, as I mentioned last week, not to just look at one, but to see all of them collectively as this seven, this number of completion. We compare and contrast, look over in your Bibles to chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to see later the church in Sardis. Jesus says, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're actually dead. Look over at the church at Laodicea. Notice the way in verse 17 of chapter 3, what Jesus says to this church. For you say, I'm rich, because again, this was a very wealthy community, and so these Christians And this church in Laodicea would have been wealthy Christians. I have great prosperity. I don't need anything. But what you don't realize, Jesus says, is that you are wretched, you are pitiable, you are poor, you are blind, and you are naked. Throughout these letters, we're going to see time and time again that Jesus' perception of the health of the church is different than sometimes our perception of the health of the church. So we think a healthy church is growing in numbers. Well, sometimes churches lose numbers because people die. Sometimes we die because of being a healthy Christian, not just dying of old age, but dying because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus has a completely different tool of measurement. I think we need to check all of us individually as Christians and corporately as a church. Notice the way he says, Smyrna, you are not poor. You are rich. Rich in what? Rich in the gospel. Rich in Jesus Christ. Rich in eternal life. Rich in storing up treasures for heaven that will never fade. Rich in fellowship. Rich in having a family. Well, what if some of them lost family members when they were baptized? What if some of them gave up everything to become Christians? Well, they became rich even though they lost everything from the earthly standards. 
The whole letter seems to be counterintuitive, paradoxical, countercultural. Look at the next thing Jesus says after talking about their poverty and their troubles and their trials. I know about your slander, about those people who say that they are Jews, but they're not. In fact, they are a synagogue of Satan. Whoa! Jesus! Wow! Like, imagine for a moment, what are you expecting Jesus to say about a group of Jews? Now, remember, we don't have any indication that Jesus is anti-Jewish. He was Jewish. Huh. So, what do you think he's going to say? Something nice about his own people. It's because these people aren't his people. As Romans chapter 2 makes very clear, Jews are not Jews that are just externally ethnic Jews. Jesus makes it quite plain that he is the true identification of the Jewish Messiah, the Christ. Anybody who does not receive him as Christ and continues making animal sacrifices and rejecting his sacrifice is not a true Jew. Furthermore, did you hear in the Polycarp story who was helping kill the Christians? Jews. Jews were. Now again, you start to get into the historical background of what's going on here in Smyrna and in western Turkey over in the Asia Minor area, and you start to realize that the Jews made compromises with the Romans, and so they, the big word here is syncretism. They mixed their worship with the Roman worship, and then they started going against, kind of allying with the Romans to help tell people, well, I know so-and-so just converted from Judaism to Christianity. Go get them. They wanted the Christians gone just as much as everybody else, and so they were like little pawns being used by the Roman government to kill Christians. Why do you think Jesus uses these strong words? It's a synagogue of Satan. When they gather for worship, they're worshiping false gods. When they're worshiping together in their synagogues, they have rejected their Messiah and their evil people that are trying to kill Christians. It's not what I was expecting Jesus to say about the Jews. I don't think Jesus is an anti-Semite. doesn't mean we should be anti-Jews. It's we should be true, the one true faith that has once brought, been delivered to all the saints, including Old and New Testament, that God is the God who created everything. He made the world. He decided that in the sin that came into the world, he was going to save that world through a people, starting with this man named Abram, and then that continues on to the nation of Israel, and that eventually that redemption would come through Jesus Christ. So if you want to be a true Jew, be a true Jew inwardly. And each of one of you, many of you might say, I'm not ethnically Jewish. I'm German. I'm whatever, right? And we go down the list. We're all different ethnicities in this room. The New Testament makes it quite plain. If you have faith, the same faith that Abraham had, you are a child of Abraham. Jesus isn't done with his alarming statements and countercultural thinking. Notice what he says next in verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Some of you are probably going to wonder, what does he mean by in 10 days? Could it be just literally like in 10 days he spoke a prophetic word and more suffering is going to come? Absolutely. 
I would think it'd probably be wiser to read the book of Revelation and many, if not all, of its numbers more symbolic than actually literal 10 days. And if you know anything about the book of Revelation, you know anything about your Bible, it won't take long for you to realize that John is heavily, heavily drawing on Daniel. So read through the book of Daniel and you'll notice that there were some guys that suffered persecution from a pagan government where King Nebuchadnezzar said, bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar and if you don't, you will be killed, thrown into fire, given to the beasts and the lions. Remember those stories? Do you remember the ten days in those stories? Seems more likely he's probably using the illusion of ten days to help remind them of that Daniel story in this passage. Either way, take it literally, take it figuratively, referring back to Daniel. What's Jesus' point here in verse 10? More suffering's coming. So, how do you normally respond to suffering? We don't need to act like you're some super mature Christian. Let's just be honest for a moment. We don't enjoy suffering. We run from suffering. We like comfort, ease. So when you know suffering's coming, well, let's go the other way. Let's go around the suffering. That's not what Jesus says. Be faithful unto death. I want you to go through the suffering I want you to be willing to suffer. Don't fear the suffering. That's because Jesus understands anybody who wants to follow him must lose their life if they're going to find it. They must die to their self and then they will find life. Did you see that sort of echoed in that final word? Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Life comes through death. Living comes by dying. Now for us, we're not accustomed to the idea that that might be taken up very literally like you're going to have to die for Jesus. A lot of times we just think of this as, well, I'm going to have to die to myself here and be a servant. I'm going to bear that cross, and that cross is serving my wife or helping with the children's ministry or walking in extra long ways to give parking spots for someone else. I'm going to just die to myself here. Now, that's all included. Those things are helpful, and we'll get to that in just a second. But friends, notice, Jesus is not talking, nor do we know from church history, of these little daily dyings to self, little being a servant and washing feet. This is literally dying, being burned to death. So I think we need to start asking ourselves for a second, what would you do? Is Embassy Church a healthy church? Well, we like to think so. But you're here this morning. You coming to this church because you feel like you have to, or you're coming to this church because you feel like, no, this is a good, healthy place for me to be. I think that's why a lot of you are here. Well, how healthy are we? Are we a room full of Christians who are willing to die? I don't know about you, but sometimes I think about that question. I think it's probably healthy for us to think about that question. What would you do? Government changes in America. It's no longer free for you to worship Jesus at all. What if people start murdering Christians here in the States? 
And you have a death sentence, a warrant for your arrest. Caught you reading the Bible. I mean, that's really the ultimate test, isn't it? The ultimate test of your love, your devotion, the ultimate test of your commitment and your sacrifice. Are you willing to die for Jesus Christ? Would you have run or would you have been like Polycarp and said, may God's will be done? I think one of the things that we need to think about this morning is that that question is, well, let's say heavy. (laughs) But I don't think we should pass over it lightly. I think we should feel the weight of its heaviness. Do you realize that more Christians have died in the last century than all of church history combined? It's not like, oh, that's back in the Polycarp Roman government days. No, my friends, it has gotten so much worse as time has gone on. Now, granted, maybe that's just the, mere, the, the sheer fact that there's more Christians. But statistically speaking, more Christians are dying. And it's been the bloodiest century of martyrdom than any century that's ever existed in Christian history. So how? How do you get to a point in your life where you are ready to die for Jesus? Especially if you're here this morning and you're thinking, no, I'm not, I'm not so sure. Like, I'm really trying to examine myself here, Phil, and I want, I want to believe, I want to think that I would be able to say yes in that moment. Yes to Jesus, no to renouncing my faith, and I could stand firm. But if you've never been there, You've not really even faced persecution. You've lived a comfortable, happy life. Things have gone generally well for you. You don't really know, do you? I don't know about you, but I wonder in the back of my head, would I really stand up? I I like to preach boldly. I like to get up here and act like, guys, let's die for Jesus. But Phil, really, honestly, would you? What makes you so sure you might? Now, we could give each other comfort this morning and say, well, God will give you the grace that you need in that moment of time and trial and that hour. I think that's definitely true. But I think there's an indicator of whether or not you know you're ready. Are you daily dying to yourself already that it's become such a normal habit of your everyday Christian life that it's almost as if, if you were to get to that moment, be like, I've already made that decision a thousand times over every day for 20, 30 years. If you're not, then I think that would be all the more. Go to the ultimate test. Ask yourself, would you be willing to die? And if you feel like, I don't know. I don't know. And if you think, well, yeah, I think I would. Well, look at your life right now. Is there anything that is giving evidence to, I'm willing to suffer. I'm willing to choose inconvenience to serve other people and show the great love of Jesus. That's what I encourage you to think about this week. If you're getting extremely depressed about this topic and question, I'd encourage you to talk this through with another Christian. Sometimes, some of you in this room, you will be the hardest critic And you will not be able to see evidences of fruit in your life that you need to be given a little help to see. But I think all of us should be challenged by this word that 
There's this song, and these lyrics in the song basically express why is it that so many men and women have gone before us in such dreadful, awful, bloody seas where we have flowery beds and comfort and ease? Why, why is that the case for so many of us in this room? Now, I also don't want to downplay the suffering that some of you already have experienced for becoming a Christian or that you might. That's real. It's real that every time you forgive somebody, you have to take the hit and die to yourself. That hurts. It's real that some of you have friends and family members that do not love Jesus Christ. They don't love Embassy Church. And the fact that you're here or the fact that you would be baptized into the name of Jesus will ostracize you from all of those people and it will feel like you're giving up everything. So solution number one to this question, how do I prepare myself, was, well, die to yourself every day. Get accustomed to doing it all the time. But we should see from the words of Jesus as we conclude, the main fuel for your passion for Jesus is the gospel itself. I think we're helpful, we can be helped, and we can learn from people since I've not experienced persecution like this. It's good for us to go and look, who, ha- who has? What was their perspective to be able to go into the face of death and be fearless? So a great example is the recent martyr Jim Elliott, a missionary into the jungles of, I think, Peru. Is that right? Well, no one else knows. Okay. Goes into the jungles to try and share the good news of Jesus. Jim Elliott was famous for this quote, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let me read that one more time. This, this is the mindset that helps you as a Christian not only to die to yourself every day, but literally die for Jesus. This is the words of Jim Elliott, a guy who died not too long ago as a Christian to try and tell people about Jesus, and he got speared to death. He says, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Sounds a lot like the words of Jesus, be faithful unto death, I will give you the crown of life. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. I've mentioned before this man, C.T. Studd, he's one of my favorite missionaries. He said, if Jesus Christ be God and he died for me, then there is no sacrifice that could be too great for me to make for him. You see the logic of Jim Elliott and C.T. Studd if they just completely give all of their worth, worldly goods away and say, I will literally die for Christ. I will give up my life for the sake of the mission and the cause. It's the gospel. We're not gaining here on this earth. We're not trying to be rich and impressive to the worldly standards. We can lose all of those things because we know that we will inherit eternal life, because we know we can store up riches in heaven, because we know that through death comes victory, comes conquering, comes life. I mentioned last week that conquering in the book of Revelation happens through suffering. I want you to turn over to Revelation chapter 12. We're not going to make our way at this time, at least that's not the plan, all the way through the book of Revelation. So I want to help you see what I'm saying here. Revelation chapter 12 
And as you turn there, I want you to be thinking about how this is the theme throughout Revelation, that Jesus is giving comfort to struggling, dying, persecuted churches. And notice what happens in verse 9 and following. Now the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered, there's our word, they have conquered him. How do we conquer the devil and his attempts to kill us and suffer? They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they have loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Could it not be more clear if you read the whole book as one? How does conquering come? By the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. That's how conquering comes. Why is he so confident that the church in Smyrna will conquer? Because he knows that it's through death that life comes. So you will not be hurt by the second death. Will you be hurt now in this life? Will suffering continue until you die? Probably good chance. But take great comfort. Take great hope in the fact that you will not be hurt. Some translations say you will not be hurt at all in the second death. And that one, referring to eternity, that's what the second death is referring to. So you die here physically, but then there's a second death. Judgment, hell, God's wrath, you can read that in Revelation 20 and see that that's the reference to the second death. You can know with great confidence you will not be hurt at all. So, do you remember Polycarp? The story we heard at the beginning? Did you notice that he was betrayed by his closest friends? And they found him because they gave in. Do you know that some accounts actually say, and I didn't read this in the story Polycarp was taken into the city of Smyrna and rode on a donkey as he was coming to die. He was sentenced to death, and there were hundreds upon thousands of Jews shouting and proclaiming for his death. And eventually he just said, not my will, but yours be done. Does that sound familiar? Now, some have wondered whether the story has been embellished, because that sounds a little too cute. <laughs> I don't know. There's different accounts. But that's not the point, whether or not those little details are true or not. We can know with great certainty there was one who was betrayed. There was one who did ride in on a donkey, first to Hosanna's, but then eventually to shouts of his crucifixion. There was one who said, not my will, but yours be done. I will take the cup of God's wrath and I will die in your place. That one was Jesus Christ. Are you at all gripped by that message? That Jesus Christ did not just come and die for us. 
He came and he died. Has it become personal where you can say he died for me, for you? Has it arrested you, like stopped you in your tracks? When was the last time that happened? Has it been a while since just this basic message, Christ has died for your sins, brought you to your tears as you think about Him dying for you? I want you to imagine that somebody was willing to give up their heart and do a heart transplant and die for you. Wouldn't that be phenomenal? You have a bad heart. Now, I hope some of you don't really have a bad heart, but if, imagine, like, you need a heart transplant and somebody's willing, I'm going to actually give my live beating heart, I'm going to die for you. That would be breathtaking, wouldn't it? No way, you're going to let me live and you're going to die. Now, you would probably imagine this person's like a family member, a friend, a loved one. But what if it was somebody you hated? What if it was somebody that you have thrown their name into the mud, you have slandered, you have trampled? What if it was somebody that you have not respected whatsoever most of your life, if not all of it? And what if that person came to you and said, I'm willing to give my heart for yours. That's the gospel. We were sinners when he died for us. We were enemies. We did not respect him. You know when Jesus was spit in the face? You can just see your face in that crowd spitting at Jesus. That was the way we've treated our Savior. And yet he says, not my will, but yours be done. Friends, this is breathtaking. And if this does not move your heart to not just worship, but say, I will give you anything because you've given me everything. You might want to examine yourself further with a friend this week, maybe even today. There's nothing greater that you could be thinking about than, do I believe this message? Do I have the crown of life? Smyrna was known for its Olympic-type games, and they gave this crown of wreath over people's heads. All of these words seem very historically appropriate, the crown of life. No, everyone else in the world, they're looking for crowns of, look how great I am in the athletic games. And Jesus says, I'll give you a crown. It'll be so much better. Is that what your hope is in this morning? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we want to give you great thanks this morning that we can rejoice in our sufferings because dying is living, because death is life. It was the Apostle Paul who said, for me to live is Christ, but dying would be gain. Thank you, God. Thank you that the worst thing that could happen to us on this earth is actually the best thing that could happen to us. Hallelujah. Praise God. You are so good to us through Jesus Christ. And so we want to just raise our voices this morning. We want to lift our hearts in praise to say, God, you are good and you are faithful. If you are so loving and gracious to use the sufferings of Jesus like that, why would we doubt for a second that you would not be faithful in our sufferings? Whether it's persecution, whether it's health issues, 
whether it's inconveniences that this world brings because of the sin and the curse of that sin in the world, God, thank you for this message, this word. And so we ask that we would be granted faith this morning. Cause our faith to rise. Cause our eyes to see your majestic love, your authority, your purity. In Jesus' name, amen. At this time, we're going to remain seated.